0: And as you think about being able to communicate with people, the technology that's available today makes communication more possible through more different means or a greater number of means than ever before. And you still have some of the antiquated means of communication, but you have some more modern means of communication so that the cumulative effect of both the older ways of communicating and some of the newer ways of communicating is there's never been more different ways to have access to communication with people. And you think about some of those means of communication, the different types. And I'm sure there's a lot more that we could come up with, but some of the ones that came to mind were write a letter. And that's what we're looking at here in Second John, a letter that was written, pen and paper, that was written from John to, at my take on it, a group of believers, a local church that he had a deep concern for. So you have letters. You have postcards. I don't know when's the last time you got a postcard. Nobody? Okay. All right. There was a postcard. Good. Uh, The last one I remember getting was in 2006. And the only reason I know that, it's not because I have a great memory. All of you know that's not the case. It's because I came across it while I was cleaning out some things. So 2006 was the last time I got a, a postcard. But that was a way you could communicate with people. You could send a postcard. How about a fax? Any of you young people know what a fax is? (laughs) okay a a fax machine was a way to take a paper document and make it into a digital signal and then send it through the phone lines so that another machine on the other end could decipher it much much like a telegram used to be way back in the day how about things like a phone call just a basic phone call it's a way two people can communicate with one another now we have text emails are not new anymore but it's a common way for people to communicate social media now is more the new new thing uh, lots of different variations of that different forms of messengers built into different apps where people can connect each other through their social media apps i was thinking of things a little bit more exotic how about an airplane banner you want to communicate with somebody, Just you have to know where they're at and you have to have the finances to hire an airplane to fly your message. You see them periodically and it's always funny that somebody would think of that. How about a carrier pigeon? Any of you have those? <laughs> you know, Carrier pigeons were birds that are specifically trained to carry messages so people could communicate with one another. A little bit less techie, smoke signals. You know ways that you could communicate information. Now, how much communication, how much information can you communicate with a smoke signal? Well, I'm not sure how much, but you can communicate a few things anyway with smoke signals. How about a CB radio? We don't have our our main trucker here up, up front this morning, but uh, a CB radio. Some of you have seen that. How about walkie-talkies? How about a bike messenger? You hire somebody to actually pedal your message from one place. To the next place there, and range doesn 't have a lot of those big cities do though, where that 's your occupation to pedal around messages from that are urgent from one person to the next you 'd think well i don 't know it 's got to be a specific kind of a document that 's so urgent, otherwise pick up the phone, you know, <laughs> let the guy rest his legs, but regardless of the number or the variety of methods that are available, no means of communication is more effective or more satisfying than simply speaking to somebody directly, face to face. And John ends his second letter by making this very point, and that's where we get the title of this morning's message, Speaking Face to Face. So let's take a look. Now, for starters, we're just going to read through the whole letter so we get our full context as we're going to finish this thing up, again, Lord willing, here this morning. So the elder, John, to the elect lady and her children. I've spoke about how I believe that refers to a local church. Uh, without going into great detail, even when you look at the word elect, if you were to study the idea of biblical election, you would see that it almost universally is corporate, referring to a group of people selected for a particular purpose, for a particular mission. So the nation of Israel was an elect nation. The church is an elect group of people corporately, not not the individual peoples being in focus, but the group of people that are called to a particular purpose. And so when you think about even the election of the church, it's not about selecting people out from humanity where God makes it so it's impossible for them to do anything but be saved and he causes everybody else to be selected for damnation. That's not the concept of biblical election. It's the idea that God chose to save everyone who would choose to put their faith in him. And so that refer, is referred to corporately as the body of Christ or the church church. Of Christ, that group of people that God chose, and He gave them a mission, a very specific mission to be light bearers for Him or ambassadors for Jesus Christ. But He didn't predetermine or force His salvation on anybody. He said that everybody could be saved. God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, the Bible says. God came to seek and to save that which was lost. God loved the whole world that He sent His only begotten Son. This is good glad tidings of great joy that will be to all people. Everybody has an equal opportunity to respond to God's message of salvation. And so that is a doctrine that is perverted and is taught very often incorrectly, that God has selected certain individuals to be saved. And the caveat or the reverse of that has to be true, which those folks never talk about, which is that if he selected people out of the mass of humanity to be saved, then he's also selected the rest to not be saved. And how that could possibly square with a sense of fairness or justice is beyond me. But yet some people teach that directly and indirectly. Sometimes they're more vocal about it. Sometimes it's just a subtle part of their teaching. But in any event, because that biblical doctrine most often with, I think, only one... One verse that you could say refers to one particular person being called to one particular mission, Uh, it almost universally refers to groups of people. And that is further evidence for my viewpoint that the elect lady here refers to a group of believers. Now, kids, sorry for that. I know that was way too much uh, for you but to the elect lady so this group of believers and her children so that's a perfect example thereof the lady references the local church the children repre- represents the individual members within that church now what does he say about them who i love i love them in truth and not only i but also those who have known the truth so everyone is a part of that universal family then of believers who have come to say that see that jesus christ is the way the truth and the life and that there's no way to the Father apart, through, apart from faith in him. Because of the truth which abides in us, now the word of truth and the spirit of truth, God's spirit now lives inside of every believer and will be with us forever. What an amazing passage there, just reminding us of the eternal security that we have on the basis of how faithful God is, regardless of our own faithfulness. That's the only way you could have any confidence about where you will spend eternity is that you see that this never had anything to do with me and it will continue to not have anything to do with me as it's all about Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Then he moves on to verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of the father in truth and love. So truth cannot be separated from love we observe. The two qualities of God, them, of God himself are inseparable just like the rest of his attributes. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. What greater joy could one have than to see that their children walk in truth is the idea which he'll talk about in his third letter. Now, as we received commandment from the Father, what was the commandment that he said was above all others, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. That is the number one thing I want you to be keeping in the front of your mind. Now, verse 5, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, in case you weren't sure of what that commandment was that we love one another. That was consistently taught by Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. Verse 6, this is love. Now what does that look like? How do we how do we show or, or respond to God's love? This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning you should walk in it. So God, as we respond to His love, we love Him because He first loved us. As we respond to His love, then we respond to or we have this mentality that says God knows best. And as I'm convinced that God loves me, that He wants what's best for me, that He knows best, that He wants to direct and undertake in my life, then I'm going to keep my focus and my gaze on Him. I'm going to want to include Him in my life. And as I do that, I'm going to be an instrument that He can work through, through the power of His Spirit so that He could produce in me a manner of living that is consistent consistent with his very character, which in this context is focused on truth and love. Verse 7, now in contrast, there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Anybody who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he is God himself, they're attacking the very person of God, that he was both fully man- and fully God at the same time, that individual who's proclaiming that false message is a deceiver and an antichrist. So he says, here's the warning, look to yourselves. That we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Not talking about losing your position in God's family, but that if we're convinced by the deceivers, by the Antichrist, about truths about Jesus Christ that are in fact false, so if we're convinced to accept their perversion of the truth, that's going to take us away from the Lord. It's going to distract us from the mission. It's going to take us away from intimate fellowship with him because we no longer see him for who he is. If you undermine the very person of Jesus Christ, let alone his work on Calvary, then the individual who had formerly had his confidence fixed in that object, if that object is shaken or that confidence is shaken, that person's not going to experience in time the full measure of practical living with God that he otherwise would. And so what will he miss out on? He'll miss out on the life that God has for him in time, but he's also, he'll miss out on the rewards that God will give to those who are faithful in serving him. Now, is this about us? No, it's about keeping our eyes on him. Are we the ones who produce the good works in our life? No, God produces them as he works in and through us. But as that happens, as we'll trust him, as we'll turn our gaze to him, as we'll go vertical with our thinking instead of being affected by the horizontal plane around us, the extra benefit, if you will, is that God is going to, on top of saving us, on top of giving us an amazing life here in time, he's going to reward us in heaven and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if in fact we have been faithful to use the time he's given us wisely in dependence on him. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God does not have God positionally? No, he's talking about he's talking to believers about their practical manner of living, their walk with the Lord. The person who is not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, who is not convinced of God's truth in the present moment, that person doesn't presently have intimate fellowship with God. He who does, though, abide in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son, meaning he has a present relationship of intimate fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not even receive him into your house nor greet him. And there was that tendency to think that love that was not qualified in any way would just be accepting of anybody. And Christians are far too prone to accept false doctrine under the guise of loving people. You can love people while at the same time not agreeing with what they have to say. You can love people with at the same time not giving them an audience to spew their false teaching. You don't have to listen or hear them out if it potentially is going to, in in this context, is to give them a platform within the local church. Now, on an individual level, you very well may hear them out. I spent an hour with two Mormon missionaries two days ago at the coffee shop. And the reality is that if you hear them out, you're going to hear some very perverted things as it relates to the truth of God's word. But if you don't hear them out, they're not going to hear you out. And that was an opportunity to introduce them or to try to clarify for them this message that the Bible teaches of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and that it's not of works, and that Jesus, in fact, is equal with God, that he was fully God and he was fully man, and that there's nothing that can be added to God's word, and that God says his wrath or anathema or curses on anyone who seeks to add to his truth. And of course, one of the fundamental issues with Mormonism is that they put the Book of Mormon on equal footing with God's Word, while at the same time saying that they put a high value on the Word of God. It was a very interesting point, being this is talking about corporately letting a false teacher have access to the church family. We wouldn't, you wouldn't abide that. You wouldn't welcome them in for that. Now he says, For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds, meaning you're guilty by association. If you allow people to speak to your congregation who are speaking things that are not true, the people here are going to naturally assume that we agree with that teaching. Okay, go one step beyond there. The people that are not here who know that that person is now affiliated in some way with our church, they're going to assume that whatever that person stands for, we stand for. Now think about that in the context of your testimony in the world around you. What is your testimony? What are you going to be known for? Are you going to be casting a favorable light on your God and Savior, Jesus Christ? When people look at you, are they going to associate you with Him? Or are they going to assume by watching you, listening to you, that you have not a care in the world about Him? Are you going to be a favorable impact onto the community, even in terms of the outreach of this local church? That's not about guilt, it's about God saying, I want you to be my light. How, how is anybody going to be attracted to the message of hope that you have if they see that your life looks hopeless? That you're wallowing in a pit of despair consistently. That you're not giving things to the Lord. That you're not prioritizing the things of faith. How would they ever do that? The answer is they wouldn't. And what would they start to think about this church? Well, that we must not hear corporately. We must not value those things either. I've heard many times people say, I wouldn't want to go to that church if so-and-so goes there. Think about that. It should be challenging and convicting. Now, sometimes that person, in fact, was being a bright light for Jesus, and that's why the person was offended and not wanting to come here. But actually, more times than not when I've heard that, it's actually because that person has been such a pill to deal with in life that this person can't see how Anything they heard here or were taught here could have benefited that person in any way because of how difficult they are to be around. So we continue with our last verses here, verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's dive in so that we are not here uh, for too long, we have communion here to do afterwards here, and we got young youngsters here with us. But verse 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. So the idea is I have so much to say to you that writing it all down would be impractical or difficult. And I often feel this way about emails. And the reason is that I'm a very poor typer. Typer? Typist? Probably typist. I never learned how to do it properly. So what you can do with all 10 of your fingers, I do less effectively with three of my fingers. Now you say, and you got all, you went through all of that schooling? <laughs> yeah, with three fingers. <laughs> three fingers. Thir- many 30 page or longer papers with three fingers. So when you're tempted to send me an email, no, I'm I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) Do email me. Uh, I can now respond to some of the emails with just the microphone part of it. Uh, Text me, that'd be better. Text me and I'll respond with the microphone. (laughs) But compare how time-consuming and tedious it is to write a letter compared to simply speaking to someone verbally in person or even on the phone. So why does John have many things to say? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but why does he have so many things to say, do you think? Now, this would be speculation on our part. Uh, Don't ever put too much stock in pure speculation, but there's some value to it at times. Why do you think it is that he has so many things to say? And And I would say it's pretty easy to see from the flavor of the letter itself is that he has such a deep concern for these believers, spiritual and physical well-being, he has such a deep concern for their spiritual growth that he has a lot of things he wants to tell them, remind them of, encouragements that he wants to give them, exhortations that he wants to make. P- possibly even he wants to uh, correct them in a, in a way that won't be that pleasant, you know, even setting them straight about some things that they're getting off track about. And so <laughs> that's why he has a lot of things to say because he cares about them. And and as I was thinking about that, I I couldn't help but think of us individually. You see, God wants us to have a concern and care for people too. He wants to use you to help establish other believers too. You should have a lot of things to say to other believers too. Because God, if He's working in and through you, He wants to speak through you. It's not like a lot of things to say in terms of, you, you know, you should be preaching at people all of the time. I'm just saying God would put on your heart a deep concern for people as he put on a heart a deep concern for your fellow believers and even for the lost around you. That would cause you to want to communicate with them. When you realize that communicating with them in person is the most effective way to communicate with them, you'd actually want to see them. And then when you saw them, you'd want to see them in a way that could possibly edify them, could build them up. You'd want to be an encouragement to them if you actually cared about them. So think about that the next time you're dragging them down in your conversation. Think about that the next time you're spewing your negativity to them just so you have an audience to be heard. Think about that the next time you're tearing people down, criticizing and complaining, even about the local church to them. And ask yourself, am I building them up through that? Or maybe should I just keep this to myself? Maybe I should just be praying about this more than I'm talking about this. Maybe I should take this and I should bring it to the right places where something positive maybe could come from it. Where maybe there is some validity to what I'm concerned about, but but chewing someone else's ear isn't a sign of love for them. That's not a, that's not a sign of wanting to build them up or caring about their spiritual growth or their spiritual well-being. Turn to Ephesians 4. I want you to get a sense of what this should look like. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We'll read through verse 16, Ephesians 4, 11. We'll read we'll read a few verses here. Talking about spiritual giftedness and how there's a lot of variety in gifts because there's a lot of variety in people. And God has given a lot of variety in gifts and he's given a lot of variety in personalities and even some of the talents that people have so that when those people come together as part of a faith family, all of the needs get met. And there's a diverse group of people, and there needs to be a diversity of gifts in order to, to minister to those people the way God intended. So he says this: he gave, some, he gave himself and he himself, sorry, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. Now what will the result in the saints' lives be to do then the work of the ministry? What is the intended benefit of that, though? of doing the work of the ministry, of saints in a local church being involved in the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, meaning till we get to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. So he's talking about why do we need to be built up? Why does the church need to be built up? So that we wouldn't fall victim to false doctrines. We all need to grow in our understanding. So that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro like children. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's why God needs us to work in each other's lives for the edifying or the building up of the entire body. The entire whole. So we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, that's a fun word, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead, what will we do? We'll be speaking the truth in love. And that's how we're going to, we'll grow up in all things into him who is the head. So that's gonna involve speaking the truth to each other in love. There's this, it's all, it's all captivated, it's all covered by the umbrella of love, but it involves this God using using us to work together for the edifying of the building up of the whole body. Now he says, from whom the whole body, how should it look? It should be joined and knit together, tightly woven together, like the strands or fibers of a, a human muscle. Tightly woven together by what every joint supplies, meaning that everyone has their part, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes what? causes growth of the body for the building up or edifying of itself in love. So when everyone does their part as empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God in their own unique ways, there's a strengthening of the whole body. There's a building up of the whole body. So that is something that should be your mentality, just like it was John's. He wants to speak a lot of things to these believers because he's deeply interested in them and he wants them to be built up. Now, remember, none of this is through your own strength. When God uses you for anything, to impact people positively, to build anybody up, it's as a channel for him to be working through. First Peter 4, 10-11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What's the point of having some gift from the Lord that you're not going to actually use to benefit others? So use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It's about to God be the glory. It's about God working in us. It's I am what I am by the grace of God. To the extent that God can use you to have a concern for anybody and be used to build them up or have a lot to save because you love them so much and you care so much about them. Then it would be to his glory. It would be done in love and it would be done with with the idea that it wouldn't be about me. It would be about God working in and through me. So the question is, Do you desire to be used of the Lord in the spiritual growth of others? Do you have a desire to minister to the needs of others? Do you have a desire to lovingly speak truth face-to-face into the lives of others? That's what God wants you to have. And John had that, which is why he said, I have so many things to write. But he says, instead of writing them, I hope to come to you and speak face to face. So I hope to come to you implies that the decision has been made, but the plans are not yet fully formalized. Now, when you think about the face to face aspect of this verse, although there are many different methods of communicating, they are not equally effective. They are not equally effective. Writing represents an effective medium for communicating information. It's an effective medium, but it's not the most effective. It has certain inherent advantages, and you could say that's why we have writing that was used to communicate God's truth. Why? Because it would have longevity. That's one of the benefits of something that's written down. It'll last longer. There's the opportunity in writing for future review versus when you strain back to think, what did they say to me? And you wonder, what you're not even sure exactly anymore what was said. And then it's more resistant to misrepresentation because if, if I say something to you and then you try to tell somebody what I said and you don't do justice to what I said, that can be, you can misrepresent me pretty easily. But if I wrote it down, or if I emailed you, I have a record of it, it's harder for you to misrepresent what I said because I'd say that's not what I said at all. Here, here is what I said. It's in writing. So there's, there's value to it. And, I, and thank the Lord that John wrote this letter to these believers. Now apparently he had a lot of other things he wanted to say and to teach them, but I'm so glad that he wrote this letter as inspired by God's Spirit because the things anyway that God wanted us to know are now here in front of us because it was a, a written format. But spoken words are more effective. Spoken words are more effective. It's estimated that an additional 38% of information communicated through in-person conversation comes from various vocal attributes. So what I mean by that, if you were to look at an example of two people communicating face-to-face, they say that less than 10% of the information that is conveyed in that um, face-to-face interaction Is communicated through the actual words themselves, less than 10%. An additional 38% is associated with the vocal attributes about the way things are said. So consider what is communicated when you're speaking words through your tone, through volume, through inflection, without any regard for what is actually said. That's why parents so often say to their kids, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. It's not the words themselves that are so laden with information. When you're communicating, very often, it's all the other things that play into it. And I'm just talking about the spoken parts of it, the audible parts of it. So you have the words themselves, but then you have the inflection, you have the tone, you have the volume, those types of things. Now, words spoken face-to-face, though, are the most effective. And it's estimated that nonverbals account for an incredible 55% of the information communicated during an in-person interaction. So 55%, if we're to have a conversation, 55% of your takeaway from, from that interaction comes from things other than the words themselves or even the verbal aspects of those words. So 55%, 38%, and then you have less than 10% that is remaining for the actual amount of information that's communicated by the words themselves. It's kind of staggering when you think about it. Now, words that are spoken in person are the least likely to be misunderstood for that reason. Because if you add the 38% that comes from inflection and tone, add that to the non-verbals like hand gestures, the way your body is postured or you know, your arms are crossed or your lips or your eyes are, you know, all of these kinds of things, the fact that you got actual sweat beating down your face as you're listening to this or that your face is turning bright red in rage. Uh, That got really dark. (laughs) So we got 38% 38 and 55%. You know, what does that get us to, 93? So now we're left with what, 7%. 7% that are from the words themselves. Now you could disagree with that. You could question the scholarship behind those studies. I'm not holding it up as... This is something that is dogmatically for sure, but let's just say that there's been enough study of it to say that there's a significant amount of benefit and a significantly less chance that there'll be a misunderstanding if I speak to you face-to-face because of all those other qualities that get to be added to the conversation that are missed through a text. That's why when you're angry, don't email people. You know this, right? When you're upset, don't text somebody. Just don't do it. If you have to, type it up, but don't send it. I'm, I'm actually being serious about that. Type it up if you must. The b- better thing would be, get <laughs> close your eyes. Well, uh, that's implying that you have to close your eyes to pray. Pray about it. That'd be better. Give it to the Lord. Spend some time with the Lord about it before you do anything. But if you, if you still are upset and you feel like this has to be addressed, do it in person if possible. Do it in person if possible. Anyway, I digress. So clearly John believes that such communication will be more effective than writing because he says, I'm just looking forward to this because I have so much to say and I want to say it to you Face to face. John valued personal interaction and instruction over correspondence. Now, sometimes correspondence is necessary. There's no other way to get the communication across because of the separation in time and space between you and that individual. Sometimes you have to write a note or send a text. But very often, when you're doing that, it's just out of convenience, and it would be just as easy to make a phone call. Doing that, you'd pick up 43% more effective communication. Okay, and then you, you move on from move on from there. But John he saw that. He he saw the value of that. And the other thing that when you think about why would he want to or say this about face-to-face communication, it's because face-to-face communication is the most intimate form of communication. When you can look into another person's eyes, when you could be standing right across from them, be watching them, be in their proximity, be sitting down with them, that's by far and away the most intimate way to try to reach an understanding or communicate something to somebody. And and John realized that. So in-person conversation, what's the takeaway? Why are we going on and on about this? The in-person conversation is a key component to fellowship with other believers. That's That's the takeaway. John, you're saying you're reading a lot into this? Maybe. But John is saying a lot here when he says that we'll get to it, but that our joy may be full. And our joy is going to be full because we're going to have these face-to-face conversations. It's an integral part to our Christian lives that we would have access to other believers and get to fellowship with them face-to-face. Now, is that always possible? No, but it's a key component. It's very vital if it is possible. You shouldn't squander it if it is possible. There is no better way to enjoy your common bond with your faith family than to come get face to face with them. Is it convenient? No. There's always something that would be easier than that. Does it mean something else is going to have to fall by the wayside every time? By definition, if you make a choice to come here and be face to faith <laughs> face to faith face to face with your fellow believers to break a bread and have a meal to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're making a choice to not do something else, right? It involves sacrifice in the sense that you're giving up of something in order to be able to come and do this. But is it worth it? Is it worthwhile to do that? That's the thing you have to be convinced about. And God says that it is. See, this principle or conclusion is is communicated by God's very design for the local church. Why do you think he would have bothered to design a local church and to recommend that as the format for people to go through the church age if it was ineffective, if it was unnecessary, if it could be replaced by notes, if it could be replaced by text messages, if it could be replaced by listening to messages online? if it could be replaced by Christian authors, if it could be replaced by Christian radio. You see, so many believe that technology just means that this has become unnecessary. There are churches, they, they may not all understand the simplicity of the gospel message. They may not all be truly Christians in the sense that they know that the only way to be a Christian is through faith in Christ, they may, they may not understand that. Put all of their eggs in the basket of what Jesus Christ has done for them. But there's churches all across the Iron Range that are for sale or their doors are boarded up because people think it can be replaced. That this is unnecessary. That you don't need one another anymore. That face-to-face interactions are not very valuable. They're not important. Or they're not as important as everything else. And that you can feel like This is, I'm doing just fine on my own. Well, why? Because I'm reading books. I'm singing songs by myself in the car. I'm still praying about people. I'm listening to messages online. The symbiotic relationship that God designed for the local church is that the body needs all the parts. And when all the parts are together, the body can function. It's not just about you. There's a symbiotic part to this. It's not just about how the rest of the body could minister to your needs. It's about how when you're not here, the body is missing part of what it needs. Now, this isn't about guilting you. This is about challenging and convicting you to bring that to the Lord if that's something that you're struggling with. God wants you to be a part of this. I'm not making that up. He puts a high value on that in his word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to read it with your own eyes. Hebrews chapter 10. Most of you know this passage. This was God's design. Hebrews 10:24. It says, "And let us consider one another." There's the first part we get wrong. This isn't about us. This isn't about you. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, how are we going to do that? Most effectively, anyway. By not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But instead, we're going to exhort one another, which means to encourage or build up one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, Brent said, maybe this year. Maybe today but we need each other. You need me, and I need you, regardless of whether I recognize that all the time, appreciate that all the time, regardless of whether you appreciate that or see that all the time. And John makes that clear. He says, next part of our verse, that our joy may be full. The value of coming to you and speaking to you face to face is that our joy may be full. Now, see how he uses our joy? He includes himself in this He's not focused on his individual joy. He's focused on the shared joy associated with fellowship with these other saints, with his brothers and sisters in Christ, a family gathering. So, John communicates this as a statement of actuality. This is a fact that our joy may be full when we're together, when we can be speaking face to face. It's not a mere possibility, it's a, a statement of fact. The completed or full joy is a confident expectation. It's not just a desire. So full or complete experience, the full or complete experience of relational joy is associated with a personal visit and the fellowship that follows. And that's what we're doing every time the family of faith here gathers. We're having a personal visit. We're having fellowship. We're lifting up and worshiping the Lord corporately together in a way that we can't do individually. Not to the same way, not, not to the same impact. So then I think about this church. <clears throat> Sometimes for a New Year's service, we, we reflect on the year in review for the church. We're not doing that today. I'm not even gonna have a lot to say about it. But as it relates to, as I reflect on the last year in this church family, I can't help but think about the in-person fellowship that was such an, an essential ingredient of every ministry success that we had. We ministered in a lot of different ways together, just here within these walls, whether it was VBS that we put on, where we did get a number of people from the community to be able to participate in that, whether it's the ministries going on every single week with Truth for Youth, Sunday schools, nursery ministries, ministries that are taking place um, formally, Ministries that are taking place informally. Many of you are visiting older people in our congregation, calling on people who are sick, following up with people. Nobody told you to do that. Nobody asked you to do that. The Spirit of God worked in you that you had a heart for people, and you're doing that. You're checking in on people. That all involved fellowship. Much of that involved face-to-face interactions. Camp ministries. Just think about all the youth events that our church has put on the fair evangelism that took place. All of these things that go by or happen in, an, in a year, the thing that makes them successful is the personal interactions that take place as a part of all of that. Now, yes, God is going to use any harvest that is sown, any seed that is sown. He's going to bring a harvest from it. We don't know all of how he's using all of those things, and that's not to undermine any of that. That's great. But just as I was reflecting on it, For me, the thing that was so essential, the essential ingredient in all of that is that people in this church came together in person to serve the Lord together in a way that we absolutely could not have on our own. That's true of what's going on in the kitchen right now. That meal isn't putting itself together. All of you, many of you contributed to this meal. God used you in that way individually. But then all of that comes together to make a meal possible for the whole church. And there's people laboring together in person, enjoying fellowship while they're doing it, so that when we walk down that hallway, Lord willing, it's not on fire and there's food ready to eat. <laughs> now you plug too many crockpots into the same outlet and who knows. Do you see that? Are you convinced Last verse, we're not going to spend any time on it really. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So it's my belief that as with verse 1, sister refers to a local church congregation. So then if you translate it, it would just be John is relaying greetings from his local assembly that he's with presently to the congregation that he's writing this letter to. And... It's evidence, though, as you see one church writing or wanting to greet another church, it's evidence of the support, concern, and love that it should be expressed within the larger faith community as a whole when we're talking about faith that is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So speaking face-to-face, do you see how blessed you are to have regular access to in-person teaching and fellowship with other believers? Have you been taking that for granted? I know I have many times in my life. That's the natural tendency of man is to never be satisfied, to never count his blessings, and to always take things for granted. Are you allowing disagreement, different preferences that you might have, personality differences? Are you allowing allowing that to interfere with the fellowship and the friendship God wants you to experience with other believers? If you are, don't continue doing that. Give it to the Lord and let go of it. There might be some validity to all of those things. You might have a different preference. Your preference might actually be better. You might have a difference of opinion. Your view might actually be better. But is it more important than this? Than the building up and the edifying and the encouraging of the local body? Let it go. It's a new year. God says every day is a new day. He says His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness never changes. But some people, just mentally, it's easy to say, to associate some changed thinking or changed perspective with a changing year. Okay, here you have it. It's the first day of 2023. Start today. But don't do it through your own strength. Give it to the Lord. I am so thankful, though, that I get to be here with you face-to-face today and experiencing the full measure of joy that God wants to make available to me today I hope you are Hope you are too now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper we're going to do that some people call it communion some people call it the Lord's Supper in either event and this is something that some of you kids wake up I know that I put some of you to sleep there kind of shake off the cobwebs maybe just wiggle your cheeks back and forth a little bit okay I got you all with me now this is very important. This is something that we should be doing every day regardless of whether or not we're doing it together. When I say doing it every day, not necessarily observing the actual symbolic reference to God's, to Jesus Christ's body that was broken for us or his blood that was shed for us. But every day we should be thinking about and remembering the sacrifice that he made for us, right? So in, in, in that sense, this shouldn't be anything too new because our hearts should be focused on, our mind should be focused on Jesus and how much he loved us and what he gave for us every day but the Lord instituted this opportunity to take and be intentional with your church family to remember what he did for us and he says do this in remembrance of me until I come again he didn't tell us how often to do it but he said to do it And so in our church, kids, we do it one Sunday a month, the first Sunday of the month, and you're usually in Sunday school. And so what we do is we pass out things that help us to be intentional about remembering just how much Jesus loved us and how he was willing to fix our problem with sin by sending a savior to become our sin for us, to pay the penalty that we should have had to pay, right? So Jesus was the innocent lamb of God, the perfect one, that could die in our place. Because if it weren't for somebody dying in our place, we would have had to die. The Bible told, told us that we were all sinners and we had fallen short of God's glory. And it said that the wage of that was that we deserved death. We deserve to be separated from God. But God didn't want to leave us that way because why? Come on, kids, wake up. Why didn't God want to leave us that way? Because He loved us so much, right? So God loved us so much that what did He do? He gave. He gave a substitute. He gave Himself, His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be the death for us, to die in our place. So that if we would believe in Him, meaning put all of our confidence and trust and faith in what He had done for us, what would happen to us? We would not perish. You can all say it out loud. We would not perish but instead we would have everlasting life. So we would be giving a life we don't deserve in place of a death we do deserve. Is that amazing grace or not? Amazing grace. And it's all because God loved us so much that he would die in the place of the guilty. Now, can everybody get a hold of that? Can everybody get in on that? Did he die for everybody's sins? Yeah, he did. So the question is not, did he die for our sins? The question is, have we put our faith in what he's done for us? Are we trusting in his provision on Calvary to take care of our problem? And in that sense, the Bible says the moment we believe, his sacrifice is imputed or it's credited to our account. So now it puts us in a right standing with God. So when God looks at us after we've put our faith in Jesus, he doesn't see our sin anymore. What does he see? He sees Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, covering us. So that we're now right with God, not because we're so wonderful but because we've been covered with the sacrifice of Jesus. And so now God, we can be where God is because there's no sin separating that relationship anymore. And so when we die, we know that we get to go to be with him forever. Isn't that awesome? That's good news. Well, the Lord, before he left, he said, I want you to celebrate that. I want you to remember that when you gather together as a church family. I want you to take time to think about that. And so that's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna have the elders in our church come forward and I hope your parents have talked to you about some of this. It was up to them to decide if you understand this well enough to, to do a, be a part of it. Don't be upset if they think you still need to mature a little bit more before this will make enough sense to you to be a part of it. That was their choice. That's why they're their parents, okay? Uh, but you can still see that this is something that we do that you're not normally a part of, and I hope you see how important it is to remember what Jesus has done for us. So at this time, we'll have the elders come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper.